Well, we're about uh, 20 months into the global pandemic, and uh, I guess time will tell how we have all been changed by it, but I've got sort of one way that I know I'm a, a little bit different. My family will actually attest to this. I think maybe because of these, you know, when the lockdowns happened, I discovered YouTube. Uh, never knew, I, again, I knew before you clicked the link and you watched a video. That's what I knew about YouTube. But I never knew there were like YouTube personalities, like uh, what's the word, YouTube influencers, you know, who have millions of views. Mark Rober, Yes Theory, and then he gets 50 million views, Mr. Beast. Anyone know Mr. Beast? Very popular, right? I'm not such a big fan, but I just watch just because it seems like everybody else is watching in that regard. And so I never knew this whole sort of world was out there. Uh, so since I'm talking about YouTube, let me just pause. Welcome our YouTube viewers today. So glad you're tuning in now or at a later time. And uh, hopefully we can connect with you this week. And then to each of you here this morning, just a welcome to you this morning. If I, Hopefully I can meet you at the door, but if not, just my welcome now. Uh, my name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And uh, back to YouTube then. I've enjoyed learning about these YouTube influencers, but also another thing I really appreciate about YouTube is some of the news channels from around the world put these little clips on, on YouTube. So DW News or France 24, BBC, Weon, Al Jazeera, you can, and so you can watch what's going on in the world. You can watch, you know, the YouTube algorithm is great. You can watch on some sort of news story from five different news sources, and I sort of love just seeing the, the balance of what's happening in the world, and certainly something that's happening now in our world. And I think it's probably always the case, and it sort of goes in this category, and it sort of leads to what I wanted to introduce this morning, is, is the idea of ethnic conflict. And again, that's always happening, but it just seems like, again, I've been watching some news stories about that. Certainly some of what's happening in Myanmar uh, is about ethnic conflict. It's more than that, but that's a part of that. There are certainly some stories coming out of China about ethnic conflict, certainly what's happening in Yemen, and then probably one of the most prominent stories recently is what's happening in Ethiopia and uh, how this country of 100 million people about is moving towards civil war, much because of ethnic conflict. And you see the title of our series, How to Live a Full Life. And as you think about sort of the conflicts that are going on around the world, if I was to, to say this morning, either here or in one of those areas, that if you would have less conflict, that would lead to a fuller life, most people are pretty readily going to agree with that premise. Less conflict leads to a fuller life. And we can sort of see that played out in extreme examples, but it also applies to us. We know that part of living a full life is how we manage relationships, how we interact with one another. And, but when you think of extreme examples and some of the things that are going on in the world, you can wonder, how do we actually see change? How does change happen in some of these places? And if you watch the news stories, it can feel a little bit hopeless. Well, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, we've been studying his words, and he now is writing to a church, and he is concerned about how they're going to relate to each other. His premise, as you see, is he wants the people in, this, in his church that he's writing to to live a full life. And his premise has been a life apart from God is emptiness. It's like you're always trying to fill it, but things are always draining out. But now he says, here's how you live a full life. 
And we spent the last two times we talked about this letter he wrote, talking about how we relate to God. You have to be in right relationship with God. But now he moves. If you want to have a right, if you want to live a full life, it matters how you relate to God, but it also matters how you relate to other people. So what do you think Peter is going to say? He's sort of turning now. Okay, here's the full life, how you relate to God. Be holy like God. Be fearful of God. Those are the two things we've talked about. What's Peter going to say about how we relate to each other? It certainly must be more than just the absence of conflict. It's got to be deeper than that. And we will find it is much deeper. And where Peter is going to now move is challenging us, and it is deeply challenging us, at the church he's writing to, to love one another. And love, not just sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling, but to love each other from the heart. Remember how Jesus said it? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so Peter now, as he's beginning to write, he he wants to say to his readers, here's what I'm calling you to. Here's how I want you to enter into relationship. And this is what leads to a full life. So I've entitled this morning, Four Ways That Christian Love is Unique. Four Ways That Christian Love is Unique. And Peter is calling us or calling his readers to something that is a little bit different than we see in the world. Some level of uniqueness there. And as we walk through this, you will see that. The first two areas of love are sort of general principles sort of big ideas, and then the last two are just real practical, and that's when we'll feel the real challenge of it. But first, let me work through the two big principles that make Christian love unique, and then we'll look at the two practical things. So I hope you have your Bibles. Again, we're just walking through this text, so if you've got them, open them up, turn them on. We're in 1 Peter. Peter's all the way at the end of your Bible. You get to Revelation, come back just a little bit. Uh, you'll find Peter there. We're in chapter 1, and we're going all the way down to verse 22. We'll do 22 and 23 today. Then next week, we'll just wrap up, get into chapter 2, and then we'll pause there and go into something new as we move towards Christmas. So let me read verse 22, and you can just uh, follow along there in your Bibles. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. And there in those verses, you're seeing the two practical things. But first, we want to do the two overarching principles. But notice how Peter starts. Now that you have. And so he's saying this. In order to love, you first have to have done something. Something, before you get to loving one another, something has to have occurred first. If you would think of a surgeon who is uh, coming into a, you know, a surgical room to perform surgery, what we know, or a little bit that I know, what a surgeon would do is first get dressed properly. You know, put the, the gloves on, the mask, the gown, get their attire right, and then they would be able to move to do the surgery. One proceeds the other. In fact, if a surgeon just tried to run into the surgery room without any of that proper attire on, people would say, no, no, you have to go back. You have to do this first. This is a prerequisite of this. And in many ways, that's what Peter is saying here. There's a prerequisite. Something came first. Now that you have, what came first? Purified yourselves by obeying the truth. 
What Peter is saying here is what proceeds loving one another is first coming to God and having him purify us, remove our sin, turn from our sin, and obey the truth, obey the gospel message of trusting in Christ. And Peter's talking about a one-time event here. But he's also talking about an ongoing process. So he's saying before anyone can love one another, the prerequisite, the first thing you must do is put on your salvation. You know, repent of your sin and obey God and trust in him. That's the process. That's the flow that Peter is getting here. So let me tell you the first principle, then I'll develop that. Here's the first idea then. Christian love is impossible. Peter doesn't just say, okay, now I've talked about your relationship with God. Now let's just move over here and talk about how you relate with people. No, he's saying one has to precede the other. And so therefore, what he's teaching us is love is something we are utterly incapable of doing without first coming to God. We need the work of God in our lives, purifying us, trusting in Christ before we have the capacity to love as Christ calls us to love. Here's Peter's premise. The standard that Christ calls us to is impossible. We cannot love our enemies. We cannot love from the heart in our own strength. We are unable to do that. We just can't do it. We need first the work of God in our lives. And as he works in our lives, he enables us to love. The kind of, the Christian love that Peter is reminding us here is impossible without first God working in our lives. One of the things that I like about social media, and because I have friends from all around the world, you get to be exposed sort of to what is happening in different places in the world, you know, because I guess the way the algorithm works, if someone comments, you know, and you're the friend and you see what they've commented on and so on and so forth. But, uh, but these two posts come from uh, sort of, I think through those times where they came up on my timeline and they are from friends from somewhere else in the world, uh, and their people are in the midst of an ethnic conflict. And that has been happening right there. And so these posts come out of that, and I want to offer a lot of grace to these posts because I think many of us have never sort of been in an environment where some of maybe our people from our ethnicity are being slaughtered or victimized by another group. That's what's happening in these moments. But here's the response to that. You'll see the postings. Let's bring them up here. You see on the left there, here's what the response said. And I've just blanked out because it doesn't really matter where this is in the world. Our people will never, ever forget what they did to innocent children and women in a certain city on August 5th. And then the second post, the pain and suffering of my people is heartbreaking. I will never forget what they did to my brothers and sisters, and I will not forgive them. They will pay a price for what they did to the innocent pastorless. All was in my heart and prayers. You get the premise of what he's saying, right? This is posted publicly, so I, but, but you see the sense of it, right? There's, we have been victimized, and there is no forgiveness. We will not forget, we will not forgive, and we will seek revenge. And again, my premise is if someone's posting that on Facebook, they don't feel a lot of shame in it. They just are feeling like this is going to be something that's generally going to be affirmed. This is the way the world works. You heard us. We will not forgive. We will seek to get revenge on you. 
And if we were to go to places where there are ethnic conflicts going on, we would realize that this kind of worldview has been happening for centuries. That's why conflicts, the conflicts persist. So if I was to say to you today, hey, the plane is ready. We'll take you to the airport and you can head over. We'll plop you down right in the midst of this ethnic conflict. And here's your seminar. Everybody, let's just love each other. Let's just come together and love. You know, let's love each other and let's love our enemies. And I think this is what you'd say. No, thanks. I'm not going. I'm not interested in doing that seminar. Here's what you would say. I might get killed. I might get killed and I'm the one bringing the message of love. And I certainly, I just don't know if I could ever, if they're ever going to listen, if they could ever love their enemies. That's impossible. And now you see the depth of what Jesus is saying. When he looked out on a group of people and said, love your enemies, love them from the heart. This is what Peter is trying to say. That is impossible to do unless first that God has worked in our heart. Only God can change a human heart to love like God calls us to love. Now, we should look at those posts very humbly, very humbly. Again, in an extreme example, it's always so easy to see. But here's what we could all admit. We can't love like Christ calls us to love. We're not able, and as Peter says, we, we understand that we first need the work of Christ in our lives to love the way Jesus wants us to love. So Peter's first idea here is when he says, you know, now that you've been purified, he's saying you need something first before you can love. You need the work of Christ in your life to love your enemies, to love from the heart. But there's also a little encouragement here that we'll come to now. If it's impossible to love unless God works in us, but then there also now is hope because God provides a way that we can be permanently and dramatically changed so that we do have the power to love like this. And that's where Peter goes next. He sandwiched this here, love each other deeply between these two doctrines because they are so interconnected. So look down to verse 23. How, if Christian love is impossible then, how does it actually ever occur? What would give us hope in our own lives or hope in the midst of an ethnic conflict? That's verse 23. For you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So Peter's saying, it's impossible to love, but here's how it is possible. For you have been, see that? Born again. Born again. There's a new birth that incurs inside of us. It's a new spiritual life that comes into us. You think of your physical birth, you know when that happened. It's a one-time moment. And Peter is saying there is also now a born-again moment where you receive a new spiritual life inside of you. And it's that life, as it begins to grow and well up, that enables you to love. Now, how does that happen? Look down. Peter tells us this is a little bit of an aside, but we'll just finish the verse. Not from a perishable seed... Our physical birth comes from a perishable seed. We know we're mortal and one day we'll die. But our, phys our spiritual birth, our born again experience, comes from an imperishable seed. 
It's a spiritual birth by God. It's eternal. We will never die. It lasts forever. And then you might say, well, how does one get born again? How do you receive this new spiritual life? It's the last part of the verse there. Through the living and enduring Word of God. Here's what God does. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to give us a new birth, to give us new spiritual life. The Holy Spirit works through the gospel to penetrate into our hearts and start something new inside of us. We are born again spiritually on the inside. Let me just talk a little bit here, mention how this happens. It happens through the Word of God. It doesn't happen through our great apologetic arguments and we should have good apologetic arguments. They, they matter. We should use them with gentleness and respect, as Peter will say later. But that's not the primary means God uses. It, it, it could, Peter could say through how well you live your lives. And we should live good, holy lives. But that's not how it happens. Peter says people are born again as they read these words, as they hear these words, as they go from someone's mouth to someone else's ears. God has a way of just using this and creating a new spiritual life inside of us. That's why what happens here on Sunday is so important that it's centered on the Word. I'm humbled by that, that God could take as I would be explaining the Word of God, that it would go out and that God would do a miracle and create a new spiritual life in someone in that very moment that God would use through His living Word, His Word that is alive. That's why if you're walking with someone, you know, and they're trying to figure out Christianity, one of the best things you can do, it's not the end of the journey, but certainly it helps them, is just ask this question. If I was to give you a Bible, would you read it? I would just get you a Bible. Would you just open it up and read, the, the, read about Jesus? And we've got Bibles here. We'd be glad to give you, to give out for free. But again, what, what's the value of that? Because that's how God works, through the living Word of God. That's why we as a church are trying to proclaim the gospel so much more often. Because as we share the gospel, as we proclaim the living truth of God, God has a way of working in those moments. We would say it this way, the gospel makes room for itself. The word of God is alive, and as it goes out from our mouths, it just has a way of making room in people's lives. And as Peter says here, leads to them being born again. So, Christian love is impossible. But yet, if you have been born again, you are able to love each other. And so let me give you the principle and then build on that. But it's not just you're able to, it's this, that Christian love is inevitable. Christian love is inevitable because God has created a new life inside of us. And this new life results in us loving one another. If you are born again, you will love. So we have two sides here. One is it's impossible. We can't do it unless we have a new birth. We can't love like Christ has called us to love unless we have the supernatural work of God in us. But the other side of it is it is inevitable. When God starts a new work in us, He's just going to keep building it up. And as we cooperate with God, it enables us to love. In fact, how do you know if someone is truly born again. First John says there's a couple of tests, but the primary test is their love for one another. 
Because when we see love for our enemies, we know that God has worked in someone's heart and they have been born again. A couple of weeks ago, I had some friends visit and one friend uh, gave me this book. I don't think it's even on Amazon. It's called East Meets West. Uh, I've read through it. The first half of the book I really enjoyed. Uh, But it's the story of a church in Korea, a 100,000 member church. So just a small little church. I think it's the largest church in Korea, but it's the story of how they came to to come across a dying Bible college and seminary in Wales, in the United Kingdom. And so this Korean church brought their leadership, brought their commitment to the gospel, brought their resources, and partnered with this church or this seminary and Bible school in Wales. And as best as I can understand from the second half of the book is that this has really resulted in this seminary and Bible school coming to life and seeing churches planted all across Europe. It's a fascinating story of really what's happening in global Christianity. Where's the center of global Christianity now? It's moving to the east and to the south. It's the story of Korean churches now coming back and ministering in the European context. But it all started, this whole journey started 150 years earlier when there was, when there were no Koreans, as far as anyone, no Christian Koreans, none in 1886, and Wales was full of Christians. So in 150 years, everything has changed in those two countries. But 150 years earlier, Wales was sending out missionaries. And they sent out a missionary named Robert Thomas. He went uh, to China as a missionary, but God birthed in his heart a heart to go to the Korean people. No missionary had ever gone to try to share the gospel with Koreans. He went once, and then on his second visit, he got onto a European trading vessel who was trying to establish trading ties with the uh, Koreans. But the Koreans didn't want to trade with anyone else. They didn't want any foreigners in their country, but the captain of the boat that Robert Thomas, the missionary was on, um, was uh, the captain got into a conflict with the Koreans and it ended up to, they they got into a fight and uh, people on both sides lost their life, but everyone on the European boat was slaughtered and killed by the Koreans, including Robert Thomas. Later, as missionaries came, one missionary or one person who was an eyewitness to that moment, a Korean himself, recounted this. One eyewitness said that one man, Robert Thomas, acted a little strangely. He was offering books to the soldiers. Those books were Bibles. With a Bible in his hand, Robert Thomas knelt down before the soldier who was waiting for him and literally begged him to accept the Bible. And in the following moment, shut his eyes to pray. The soldier hesitated and then executed Robert Thomas. That's how his life ended. That's the story. But this Korean church, as they came to understand Robert Thomas's love for the Korean people as a Welsh missionary, it was that debt of love that 150 years later motivated them now to return to Wales and share the gospel there. Interesting little aside, when Robert Thomas died in that moment, he was not very highly regarded. Sometimes you think, you know, if I do something in the name of the Lord, is it ever in vain? And we know the verse in the Bible that says, nothing we ever do in the name of the Lord in vain. 
for Robert Thomas and those that knew him, it looked pretty vain. It looked like it had amounted to nothing. But in 1865, the year earlier, his young wife had died on the mission field, and then he was uh, martyred there in Korea. In fact, one of his fellow missionaries wrote this. He proved disastrous to himself and dishonorable to the missionary name. That's how he was remembered in his time. But 150 years later, his act of love spurs a Korean church to adopt a Welsh Bible school and sees churches planted all over Europe. The, the way God works through our love. But how do we know? Can we look back on that and say, how would we know that Robert Thomas really was a believer? How do we know that he really was born again? Well, we would say and look by his love. By his love. That kind of love for those that were his enemies, in small e, quotation mark, that kind of love is only birthed by God in our hearts through a born-again experience. And what's our hope as we look around the world for, for hope in the midst of ethnic conflict? Oh, that the gospel would go forward in those communities, that people would hear the living and enduring word of God and be born again. And as they would be born again, what would begin to work in their hearts is love for each other and love for their enemies. So those are our two big overarching principles. The kind of love that Peter is calling us to, the kind of Christian love, it is impossible. We cannot do it in our own strength. But yet, when we yield to God and experience His new spiritual life in us, it is inevitable. It's what spiritual, our spiritualized, what works out of us. So those are the two overarching principles. Let me give you now the two practical takeaways for this, which are indeed very challenging. Look there back to verse 22. We already read it. What does it say? It says, sincere love for each other. So here's my third idea. Christian love is sincere. It's impossible. It's inevitable but it is also sincere. What is insincerity? Let's just do the opposite first so we understand. Insincerity is when we are not honest, when we don't actually express how we actually feel, where we hide some truth. It could be, you know, in the category of hypocritical, where we cover up our intentions, or our motives. Sincere love is very different. It's genuine. It's real. There's no falsehood. There's no deceit. It's where we are honest in expressing how we actually feel about truths. Sincere love calls for real wisdom, real discernment, but it also calls for real courage. And as we look around our culture today, here's what we know. We know that it calls for real courage in our culture today because our culture is equating uh, love our culture says that if you love me, you will not say anything that would be negative. If you love me, you can't say I'm wrong. If you love me, you, you can't make any, any comments about me. You certainly, if you love me, can't say that I have sinned. Our culture in many ways is, equa is equating acceptance and celebration with love. In fact, maybe the definition in our current culture today would be this. 
it's unloving to say anything that might hurt someone else's feelings. But yet what we have done in our culture is elevated feelings to such a degree that we have forgotten about truth. That there are some truth things. And, and here's what we would all agree on. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we would all agree this morning that there are some behaviors that are wrong. We, if I was to ask any one of you, you could very instantly agree and say that is wrong. Now, we may, we may agree or disagree on some of those things, but we all would agree on that general premise. And so on that general premise, sincere love is saying, if you believe that someone is doing something wrong, you should be honest in expressing that truth to them. That's what sincere love is generally. But then for us as Christians, for those who are followers of Jesus, how do we determine what is right or wrong, what is sinful or not? It's what Peter has said in this text, the enduring word of God. Right, the Word of God is alive, it goes out, and it creates new spiritual life, but it is also enduring. It lasts the test of time, 2,000 years, every culture. There, and it challenges every culture, but it has also stood the test of time. And so to have Christian love, Christian love, means that when we see someone's life who is altering from the enduring Word of God, we should be honest in expressing that actual truth to them. That's what Christian love, when Peter says that's what sincere love is, that's what he is calling us to. Now, we don't like that at all. That's hard because here's what we know. It, we don't like to do it. It's hard work to love that way. We would all say the way our culture has wired us, it is hard work to have that kind of sincere love for other people. In fact, we might say it this way, it's impossible to love people like that. Oh no, that's why we need the spiritual life of God to well up inside of us. We need to run to Him and say, oh God, would you help me to love people sincerely with a sincere love? So, can I just ask this? This is, a, this is the challenging question. Who have you loved insincerely? Who might you be loving insincerely? And would you this morning be willing to go to God and say, God, forgive me for my disobedience. Forgive me for not loving like you have called me to love. Forgive me for not loving like you have loved me. Would you go to God and ask for his forgiveness, receive his grace, and then say, oh God, may you work in me to love sincerely, to have the wisdom, the discernment, the kindness, but also the courage to love sincerely. That, that's the first challenge that we read here from 1 Peter about what Christian love is. The second one is no less challenging. You see what it says. He says, now that you have this sincere love for each other, look down. What's the next part? Love one another deeply. And so Christian love is not just sincere, but it is also deep. Again, not shallow, deeply strong. In, it, this word deeply means to strain intensely with every muscle, be stretched to the limit, use supreme effort to love. That's what Peter is saying when he says, love one another deeply. 
It's actually, if you remember back to the, the story of Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying there. He's praying in the garden and Luke, the doctor, records that moment for us. And Luke says he, his sweat was like drops of blood. But Luke also describes how Jesus was praying. And Peter, who wrote these words, you remember he was there. Now he fell asleep. But for some of the time, he would have saw how Jesus was praying. Here's what Luke says. Peter prayed, or sorry, Jesus prayed earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood. It's the same word that Peter uses here for how we are to love one another. When Peter writes to this church, he says, how do I want you to love? Okay, what's a good word I can use? Oh, oh yeah, the same way I saw Jesus pray in the garden with an intense strain stretched to the limit, a supreme love for each other. Let me just give a couple of quick applications. One is, you know, I mentioned earlier, 20 months in, I believe, to our global pandemic. And here's what, here's what we all know about if you talk to someone about what's going on in our world, if you talk to 100 people, you will get 100 different opinions. Everyone sees things slightly differently. And again, these are disputable matters. We all sort of have ended up in different places. But here's what I would ask, and I'm not sure where we're going to be in five years and what we'll reflect back on this, but here's what I do know for sure. Have we loved each other deeply? That's a question that's worth asking now and in five years, worth looking back and evaluating. As a church, as people, have we loved one another deeply? In the midst of people who see COVID and the politics and all that's going on differently than you do, have you stretched yourself to the limit? Have you taken supreme efforts with every muscle? That's what Peter's saying, to love one another, to love people who see this differently than you. This is the kind of love that Peter is calling us to. One other application point on this love deeply that I'm praying that God would raise up more of us in this category around Harbor. It relates to our mission statement here, walking with people from disenchantment to discipleship. We took that right from Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And here's what we know. If you're going to go and make disciples, it takes a, a deep love. Why is that? Because you have to give more than you receive. You have to work hard. You have to take the initiative. You have to open yourself up to weakness and failures. And so to make disciples, for us to fulfill that, takes people who are willing to love deeply. Now our heart as a church is that we, this morning, that many of you might say, I'm ready. I want to be raised up as a disciple maker. And, and you know, over these last years, if you've been around Harbor, we've tried to train in some simple tools where if you say, I don't know how to make a disciple, we know we can teach you how to do that. And I'm trying to block off more time where I'm providing coaching to all the people that are doing that exactly. But here's the barrier. Here's the barrier that I hope today my encouragement might help us overcome. We just need more people who would love so deeply, intensely strain, stretch themselves to the limit, take uh, extreme effort to just say, I'm ready, I want to invest, I want to make disciples, I want to invest my life in other people. You know, the measure of making a disciple is, have you passed on 
what you know to someone else so that then they in turn can pass that to someone else. It's like if you were thinking of parenting, it's do you have grandchildren? Have you made a disciple that has made a disciple? And I'm praying that God would just continue to deepen our heart as a church. Say, God, may we love others and may we seek with everything we have as a church to make disciples of one another. And so here would be my second challenging question as you would just pause. How are you doing in that mission? The mission that Christ gave us, go and make disciples. Are you loving people like that? Who have you loved deeply enough this year to disciple them? And again, if God, would you open up your heart to say, God, how can I love more? How can I be making a disciple of someone else? So this is what Christian love is. It's impossible. We can't do it. But yet, oh, God works in us through the living and enduring word of God, bursts a new spiritual life in us. And as that life wells up in us, that kind of love is inevitable. But then as that wife is working in us, and if you're feeling that today, if you, again, as you feel the spirit working in you, you're, you, as I have been challenged, to sincerely love one another and then to deeply love one another. A couple of last things. One is if you're here this morning, and you realize, and you would humbly say that you have failed in your ability to love others. You, you would honestly say, yeah, I've tried to love in my own strength and it has been impossible. Wouldn't today you come to Jesus? Wouldn't you come and say, Jesus, I turn from my sin, I turn from my lack of ability to love and I trust in you that you would birth a new spiritual life in me so that I can have your strength and your power to love. And for all the rest of us, when we see the great love that Christ has for us, aren't we so humble? We see the way Christ has sincerely loved us and deeply loved us all the way to the cross. And may we come to him and we say, oh God, may you forgive me for not loving like you have loved me. And God, may you help me understand your love more so that I can pass that on to others. Let me pray for us today. Father, the, uh, we, we mark, Lord, you said two, the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And God, it seems so easy, but it is so deeply challenging. And so God, we pray today, Lord, that you would work in our hearts a love, Lord, for our families, a love for those in our circles. God, a sincere love, a deep love, God, may you spread that around our church and around our community. God, we admit, Lord, we, we confess, Lord, what, what we need and what our world needs is more of your love working through us. So help us to be those people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We end every service with four words. It just reminds us that we've gathered here for a purpose, but now we go with a message and with a mission. And so harbor we are.